So friends, the end of the summer is upon us. The state fair ends tomorrow. Kids have already gone back to school, or they are going back to school, and a new ministry year is about to start, and very excited for a next Sunday. It's our, our fall kickoff, and so returning again back by popular demand, Ken Parsons and the Curbside Chicken Food Truck. Well, I know, we're very pumped for that. We'll be right outside. Uh, and a bouncy house, so this will be an ample you know, time to celebrate together um, all the great things God has done and has in front of us, and, and it will also mark next Sunday the end of our summer series on public faith, and that question of how we bear witness in the public square, how we carry ourselves, and what it is, what's the hope that we have to share with the world. But I think so much of this, you know, probably I fall guilty of this as much as anyone of um, when we talk about public faith, it's talking about talking about faith. And so talking about something is easier than doing it. And the joke has been made about uh, Presbyterians, I think it's true actually, that they're so good at talking about things that they think that they've actually done something. So I don't want this morning to just do that again, to talk about talking about public faith. I want to show what, what does public faith look like in the Bible. And here we have an actual public official, prominent public official doing something like public faith. And so it leads us to the last verses of Genesis and, and the climax to the story of Joseph, which, which touches on actually one of the most vexing questions that, that there is and things that we have to speak to uh, when we come into the public square, which is also one of the most infamous cliches that there is. This question of, you know, this statement, everything happens for a reason. Right? Everything happens for a reason. And so I want to ask this morning, is that true? Is that what Scripture teaches? Is that something that we ought to offer up in the public square? These are hard questions, and, and we're going to examine them through the story of Joseph this morning by looking at, at, at three things, at Joseph's tears, at his perspective, and his witness. So Joseph's tears, his perspective, and his witness. So first, his tears. So everything happens for a reason. Imagine saying that to someone like Joseph, a man whose life had gone totally and completely sideways from the expectations that he had had at the beginning, totally different than the way that he dreamed, literally dreamed that it would go. So right before our passage, uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, had just died. He died in Egypt, and so there was this long period of mourning where his body was returned to Canaan for burial. And this was especially painful for Joseph because he was his father's favorite son. And he had been separated from his father for years and years for reasons so painful that it almost beggars belief. In verse 15, it says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Yes, all the evil that they did to him. That is a fitting phrase that can hardly capture the disastrous consequences of, that the brothers' treachery had brought upon Joseph. And Joseph's brothers, they hated him with a perfect hatred. 
Not only was he his father's favorite son, which led him to get, you know, the famous coat of many colors. And scripture explicitly tells us that Jacob loved Joseph more than all the rest of his sons, which is a warning to any parent to make your favoritism too obvious. And to make matters worse, when we first meet Joseph, you know, the first thing we learn about him is he's kind of a narc. He's out with his brothers, and, uh, and they're, they're, they're watching over his father's flocks, and it tells us that he brought a bad report back to his father about his brothers. So not only is he, you know, daddy's favorite, but he's also a tattletale. And, and, and even worse, he's a dreamer. And his dreams are that he will be greater than his brothers, that they will literally bow down before him and pay him homage and worst of all, besides being a dreamer, he told his brothers about the contents of those dreams. And so he's a tattletale, he's daddy's boy, he's incredibly arrogant. And so one day, his brothers are out tending the flocks again, and his father sends him out to look after the well-being of his brothers. And they see him coming, and they hatch a plan. They are going to deal with this dreamer once and for all. And they debate whether or not to kill him and decide eventually that the best course of action is to fake his death and sell him into slavery. So Joseph, daddy's favorite, is sold as a slave. His beloved coat soaked in goat's blood and given to his father as evidence that he died because of an attack by wild animals. Everything happens for a reason. Then Joseph becomes the slave of Potiphar, an Egyptian official, and, 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 and Scripture tells us that the Lord was with Joseph, and, and so in all he did, he prospered, but Potiphar's wife sought to, to lay with him, and so Joseph, when this happened, he, he ran away, but she had gotten hold of his garment, and so she accused Joseph of attacking her, and so Potiphar was understandably furious and threw Joseph in prison to rot. Everything happens for a reason. But there Joseph just happened to meet the king's cupbearer, and he interpreted his dream to mean that the cupbearer would not remain in prison forever or die, but that eventually he would be released. And so the cupbearer remembered Joseph when Pharaoh was being troubled by these dreams that he couldn't understand. And so he called to Joseph, and, and Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams that there would be seven years of plenty and then seven years a famine, And so Pharaoh released Joseph and, and put him in charge, basically made him the prime minister over all of Egypt. Everything happens for a reason. And it was from this position of power and prominence that Joseph was able to prepare for the impending famine, which ended up saving his entire family, including his brothers who had sought to kill him and had done so much evil. Everything happens for a reason. And a few chapters before our passage, there's this emotional, intensely emotional scene where Joseph, he, 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 his brothers had been communicating with him, but they didn't recognize him because they hadn't seen him for so long. And then Joseph finally reveals his identity to his brothers, and, and they weep, and it's this incredible moment of reconciliation, and they bring their father to him. And, and, and Joseph, for the next 17 years, takes care of their every need. But now their father is dead, and the brothers fear that the time has come for Joseph's revenge. As long as their father was alive, they were safe. But now their protector is gone, and they cannot 
imagine that Joseph will not finally seize the opportunity to get even. There's no way they think that he can just let us off the hook after all that we did. And so the brothers in fear, they don't even go to Joseph themselves. They don't even have the nerve to do that. They send a messenger and they say, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And, and the language that the brothers are using here through the messenger is actually the language of a last will and testament. Basically saying like, this is what dad, this were dad's dying words. These were his last words that he wanted you to know, Joseph. Forgive your brothers. And actually they hadn't asked for forgiveness yet. Even when uh, they were astounded and Joseph's identity was revealed, they never actually asked him for forgiveness. And they can't even ask for forgiveness in person themselves. They do it kind of surreptitiously through uh, a messenger speaking for their father. And so they're manipulating Joseph's love for his father in an attempt to save their own skins, and they don't even have the nerve to do it themselves. And when he hears these words, Joseph weeps. And I think he, he weeps, and this is one of the most human moments in the Bible. I think he weeps because he sees that his brothers, they still don't get it. They're still acting like eventually he's going to get them. They're acting like every good thing that Joseph has done for them has been a ruse just because of his father. They're acting like his love and his care and his forgiveness couldn't be real. They're acting like Joseph is still their enemy and not their brother. And it reminds Joseph of all the pain he endured because of what they did to him. And despite the good that came about because of it, the countless lives that were saved, what wasn't saved, what hasn't been restored is his family. He weeps because his brothers still don't get it. They still can't see it. They still don't understand what God has been up to in all this. And they don't understand the hardest truth of all. That everything has indeed happened for a reason. So that helps us to understand Joseph's tears But what's most astounding is Joseph's perspective. The words that he shares with his brothers, these are some of the most astounding and theologically rich words in all of Scripture. When word reaches his brothers that their message has brought Joseph to tears, they now understand that Joseph isn't going to harm them. And so they come into his presence and they throw themselves at his feet and bow down and declare, we are your servants. Still not his brothers, his, his servants. And this, ironically, is literally Joseph's dreams that he had when he was a 17-year-old coming true, that his brothers would eventually bow down before him. His life has come full circle, but in a way that none of them, especially Joseph, ever could have imagined. Could 17-year-old Joseph have imagined when he had this dream of, of the sun, moon, and stars bowing before him or these, these, these sheaves of, of grain bowing before him, could he have ever comprehended how much pain and suffering he would have had to go through for this dream to come true? Everything happens for a reason. And so Joseph begins by telling his brothers, do not fear which is the most common command in all of Scripture. And it's normally on on the lips of God. But when it's spoken, it's always a word of blessed assurance. 
Assurance to his brothers that they've been forgiven and that they aren't going to get what they deserve. And then Joseph says something in verse 19 that we normally skip over because verse 20 is like the payoff verse of the whole Joseph story. You know, we want to get to verse 20 because it's one of the most beautiful verses that we have in all of Scripture. But we skip over verse 19, which is, I think, just as profound and and really helps us understand what's at the heart of verse 20. He says, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? And here Joseph is providing the necessary perspective that we need to heal when terrible, bad things happen to seemingly no good end and for seemingly no good reason. He's acknowledging the most important truth of all, that when it comes to understanding why terrible things happen in this world and why people commit evil acts, the most helpful thing we can do is confess our ignorance of why these things happen. Because everything happens for a reason, sometimes, maybe oftentimes, maybe always, needs to be followed up with or qualified with, and God only knows what that reason is. Because who really has the knowledge to know why people do things? what they really deserve, what their life was like, their family was like, their physical, emotional, mental health. We don't know what God knows. And we don't understand what God understands. And it's not a matter of degree, but of quality between perspective. Right? God isn't just like us, but sort of has a slightly larger perspective on things. It's an infinite qualitative difference. And so Joseph, I think ultimately, you know, though he could have said, well, I was arrogant or I was a tattletale or I was a jerk, that doesn't seem to merit, you know, selling your brother into slavery, you know, no matter what a jerk he was, you know, no matter what our siblings did to us, we probably wouldn't do that to them. So he ultimately can't understand why his brothers did what they did and why it was that God used that to save so many lives. All he knows is that it did happen that way. As he says in verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Tim Keller said in his sermon on this passage, this is theologically rich faith working itself into love. And if we say that everything happens for a reason, then we've got to mean it in the Genesis 50, 20 way. And I I love what uh, the Jewish commentator Nahum Sarna, in his commentary on this verse, he says this, God may use man's evil purposes as the instrument for the ultimate good beyond the knowledge, desire, or realization of the human agents involved. What may seem to be a chance succession of disparate incidences is in reality a process so that what has happened and what is unfolding take on meaning when viewed from the perspective of God's time. That's deep. And so maybe rather than saying that everything happens for a reason, we can say that there is nothing that can happen. No evil deed or terrible tragedy that is beyond the scope of God's power to redeem it and to fold it into his plan. The goal of which is that many people should be kept alive. And this isn't false comfort or a banal cliché. This is a theologically profound statement that was hard won coming from the mouth of Joseph, right, who had been through hell. 
And he could say this because he understands that, well, he might not always and we might not always understand the how of how God works. We can place our faith and trust in the what. What is God working for? Which is the saving of many lives and the redemption of all creation. So that's Joseph's perspective. But the last thing is Joseph's witness, because Joseph's story isn't just Joseph's story. Look at who Joseph is and what happens. And I think one of the easy ways to misinterpret this story is we think about when, when what you meant for evil, God meant for good, and we just locate that on the individual of Joseph. And so we say, well, he went through some bad things, but what doesn't kill you, you know, makes you stronger. Uh, Nietzsche said that, uh, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, and so um, bad things happened, but at the end of the day, he succeeded, rose to the top, he was rich, he was powerful, he was successful. And so what they meant for evil, God meant for good in the terms of his individual person being successful. But that's not what this story is about. The good that Joseph understands God intended was for other people. God's purposes were achieved through Joseph's suffering, saving many lives, saving many, many, many people from famine, including his own family, which bore God's promise. And so Joseph's story, his life is a signpost. It's pointing beyond himself to someone else. God achieving his purposes through suffering and evil is a biblical principle we see again, of course, most pointedly in the New Testament. There is one who is the true and greater Joseph, And the parallels are striking. So Joseph is betrayed by his brothers and he's handed over for silver. And we see Jesus betrayed by one of his disciples and sold for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph became a slave. And the beautiful passage in Philippians where uh, Paul says that uh, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. Joseph was falsely accused of attacking Potiphar's wife. Jesus was falsely accused and condemned for sedition and blasphemy. Through Joseph's suffering, many people were saved from starvation and death. Because Jesus suffered, many people were saved from spiritual starvation and death. And through his suffering, Joseph was exalted as a prince over Egypt. And through his suffering, Jesus was exalted Lord of all. And Joseph forgave his brothers who did all but kill him. And Jesus forgives his brothers and sisters who actually killed him. Jesus is our Joseph, and we are his brothers and sisters. We don't deserve mercy, yet we receive grace upon grace. When we understand that, it, it, it should do a couple of things for us. One of them is it should empower us to be more forgiving people. If God could forgive us that much, if Joseph could forgive his brothers that much? How much more could we forgive or who we could forgive or not hold a grudge? And that's a hard word for me because I like some of my grudges. Right? It gives me uh, the high ground, the moral high ground. It should also help us to endure suffering and not give ourselves over to despair, knowing that there's nothing, literally nothing, that is outside the scope of God's ultimate plan of redemption not even Joseph's saga or the cross of Christ. And lastly, it should be the encouragement to us that though we can't see it, that God can use our lives, whatever's happening in them, for the saving of many lives. 
right? You might be just the person to have a conversation, to do an act of compassion, to be looking out for someone else, to, to, for God to affect great things, and you don't even know it. You can't even see it. But God can use your story, your life, to do great things and save many lives on a multitude of levels. And so that question, you know, does everything happen for a reason? And I think looking at Joseph's story, I would say, well, I guess it's all a matter of perspective. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.